It's show 80 of the Rim Pro Report. Today, the industry news and Chris Howard of Waterfront Capital. This show is sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. I spend a lot of time talking to people in the industry every day, from large operators to one-man bands. And one thing that everyone takes for granted is just how great the software they have is. You know, the company that set the standard and continues to do so is O'Neill in software. If you're interested in learning more about how they can help you, get on the old World Wide Web and visit them at O'NeillSoft.com. Let's get this party started. Welcome to the Rim, Rim, Rim Pro Report, the one and only weekly broadcast for the Rim Support Services industry. Bustling with news, views, here's what I believe, and the latest updates. Let's just end. This show is full of interesting information. Stories. Yes. Important product and service reviews. Yes. And a cast of industry characters included. Yes. <laughs> Record center operators. Shred and destruction vendors. Media and electronic vaulters. Scanners and imaging providers. Take note, this show is for you. Now, here's your host, Tom Adams. Yep, we're back, and I am glad you're here, too. We're coming to you from the uh, studios, the World International Studios of RimPro Report. Thanks for joining us today. Today on the show, we are going to talk to Chris Howard, the founder and partner of Waterfront Capital. Waterfront is extremely active as an agent in industry mergers and acquisitions. From my perspective, Chris is someone who has one of the most unique views of the acquisitions that continue to occur in this industry. And I've wanted to have him join me on the show for quite a while. So I feel pretty grateful he has finally gotten a chance to share his story and perspective with us. But before I get Chris on the line, I wanted to catch you up on some of the industry news that happened in this last week. Looks like Iron Mountain has announced three new service offerings aimed at helping their customers to find and retrieve files stored on magnetic tapes. These services, Iron Mountain Tape Identification, Iron Mountain Data Restoration, and Iron Mountain Media Migration, enable organizations to identify specific files stored on tapes, access this data for legal discovery or other business needs, and transfer the data to newer media formats. I think more and more... We have to move as an industry to value-added services on top of the storage. That seems to be the the real revenue producer, but I think this value-added proposition uh, that Iron Mountain has just identified and that many companies in the industry continue to identify is really the next and most important move, and it looks like they've, they're doing that with this announcement. Hey, West Tex Document of Lubbock, Texas, was awarded as one of the 75 winners of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Blue Ribbon Award. So congratulations to John Miller and the entire team at West Tex for this really cool recognition. And if you're in the shredding business and are not coming to the NAID conference, I strongly encourage you to continue to take a look at the conference and the opportunity. In a small personal plug, I'm launching my brand new book at the conference, to accompany my morning keynote, I just talked to Bob and Jamie at Nade, and there is still a small block of rooms available at the hotel. And so if you can make that trip to Anaheim, 
I know Nade would love to see you. I know you'd learn a lot. And for the record, it'd be kind of cool to see you there at my Sunday morning presentation. Hey, well, that's it for the news. If you have news you want to share, let me know. Send me an email or fill out a form on the rimproreport.com site. I'm going to get Chris Howard on the phone right now. Hang on a sec. Here we go. Chris Howard is the founder of Waterfront Capital, a private investment banking firm that has done an infinite amount of work in the rim industry. Chris, are you on the line? I am, Tom. Hi, how are you? Hey, good to have you on the Rim Pro Report. So a- as we get started, tell me more about Waterfront Capital. What What's it all about? What do you guys do? Well, Waterfront Capital represents uh, sellers generally in the records management space. Okay. And uh, we've been active in the space since the um, mid-90s. So you've been doing this a while. We have indeed. Yeah. And my sense in knowing about you and watching you over the years is you've, you've done a fair amount of deals over, over your lifetime in this industry. We have. Uh, Sean played my partner at the Waterfront uh, for the last nine years, and I um, have represented uh, buyers and sellers in um, close to 200 transactions. Wow. And and I know there's recently been a lot of transactions, but over the nine years, you're saying that 200 transaction, that, that puts a lot of expertise in your lap. Well, I guess I should say the uh, close to 200 transactions represents the, the deals we worked on uh, independent of each other prior to okay. becoming partners nine years ago and since the formation of uh, the partnership. Before we dig into more about the the work that you do, I'd like to get a little bit more of your story. So you did some undergrad and grad work at uh, University of California, and then what happened? What's your path to here? So I graduated undergrad from Berkeley, worked in investment banking for a time, joined a private equity firm. In the late 80s, we took a run at a company by the name of Leahy Archives. Okay. And uh, Peter Pierce and uh, his family were successful in, a, in acquiring Leahy. But we, we learned enough about the, the industry at that point that I developed an affinity towards it. And flash forward into the uh, mid-90s, uh, had a chance to work on a, a few transactions, uh, enjoyed it immensely, and was off to the races. We ended up, uh, as the industry was starting to consolidate rapidly in the 96 forward time frame, uh, and we caught that wave and just worked on a whole lot of deals. And so you were actively involved in many of those deals, and that, that was really the time when Iron started buying everybody, right? Indeed. So I initially represented sellers, and then for a half dozen years represented uh, Iron Mountain on the buy side, and then uh, went back to uh, almost exclusively working with sellers, uh, and Sean joined me uh, about that period uh, eight, nine years ago. You get into this business uh, working in mergers and acquisitions, and early on as you got into the business, what was so attractive to you about it? Was there something that was particularly interesting to you about this versus doing deals in other types of industries? Yeah, there were several attributes to the industry that we found unusual. The highly recurring nature of the revenues and predictability of the cash flow I think are pretty unique. The operators in the space are terrific. I think there's a, a willingness to, probably because the revenue is so stable, folks are a little less uh, cautious and, and more uh, just friendlier in, in providing information to, to new players. And I uh, really just enjoyed the camaraderie of the industry participants. And, and most, of the, 
most of the players in the space are very successful. Right. So if you think about the restaurant space where, you know, half of these guys are not making any money and yeah. end up going broke. I mean, in the record space, you know, we've worked with a couple hundred players and, you know, almost universally, uh, almost everyone has done reasonably well over time. Well, and what's interesting to me, and I, I know enough about your story that what one of the intriguing things to me about you is not only have you represented buyers and you've represented sellers, you actually were an owner of a record center. Tell me a little bit more about that whole story. Yeah. So um, in uh, 1999, Iron Mountain, you know, at the time I was doing work for them and they would often hand off any complicated or messy situations to me. And they had a, uh, they had a subscale operation in uh, Medford, Oregon, and said, Chris, go sell this or unwind it or make, make the problem go away because we're not making any money there. And uh, ultimately um, ended up buying the business myself with, uh, with an operating partner, uh, Greg Miller. And uh, Greg and I turned the business around immediately we actually just sold it a few months ago to Access Information Group. Right. But we owned that business for you know something like 12 years and had a very good run. We um, I don't think we were profitable every month for the 12 years we owned it. And uh, you know under the previous owners uh, Iron Mountain and Hems Corp before that and the founder of the business uh, Mead Clifford prior to them uh, nobody had made any money in that that market. So uh, very proud of uh, uh, Greg's work and. Uh, we had a very successful exit and enjoyed uh, working with Access. So, good deal all the way around. Yeah. So you are someone who does deals all day long, and when it's your own business that you're about to do a deal on, how do you think through that? It is there a different level of interaction on that in terms of this is your baby and you you approach it differently, or or how did you go about getting prepared to sell the thing? What what was your thought process? Yeah, that's funny. That's a great question. Yeah, the answer is is a strange one. I, it's a little bit of the uh, cobbler with uh, holes in his shoes. Sean and I take a very aggressive approach to uh, representing our clients. We we think a lot of preparation and uh, hard work uh, help drive a uh, better outcomes. Yeah, and you know, we've been able to demonstrate that over the years. But you know, in this case, I had decided as we were getting towards the end that I just didn't have the bandwidth to uh, devote to the business. I had other things on my plate, and uh, we were, um, you know, having been through the the sale process on so many deals, we, you know, we certainly went through that, but, you know, it probably could have gotten more attention than it did, but access was terrific to deal with. We didn't have any, uh, it was a pretty straightforward transaction. Right. Um, we didn't have a lot of uh, wrinkles to it, and uh, went went smoothly, so... No troubles there. So that leads me to another question because it feels like to me the last 18 months have been extremely active again in acquisitions and you you did your your deal you sold your record center in this this last period of time and there seems to be three or four big players out there who are buying 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 right now what's really happening from your perspective in terms of mergers and acquisitions? Can you explain what's going on? It, it just seems to me like it's it's another heavy hit again. Sure. So I, I wouldn't say that the activity level is meaningfully higher of late. Certainly, um, Access uh, taking on a new partner was a meaningful event. I think most people are aware that there's a uh, one of the, one of the more significant players in the industry is in market uh, now and yeah. likely to trade over the next couple of months. 
You're talking recall. I am indeed. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And recall will likely trade to a private equity um, backed buyer. Right. Generally, I would I would argue that the capital markets drive a lot of the M and A activity in this space, and by that I mean that the debt markets, to the extent uh, inexpensive debt is available to private equity backed buyers, it facilitates their ability to pay reasonable prices for businesses that sellers deem greater than the value is to themselves. So we're seeing transactions still. As the uh, organic growth rate slows down and as the uh, debt markets you know, potentially tighten back up, that may change. Right. But um, for now, we're seeing uh, terrific competition for deals. That's true in most industries, but uh, our industry has, has been unusual in that the, uh, the initial roll-up that started in 1995, 96, 97 – has continued almost unabated since then, and uh, uh, multiples have held up uh, unusually uh, well yeah. throughout that period. And um, that's been a function of buyers' access to capital and uh, more, than, more than one buyer. And one of the things Sean and I like to talk about is it's important to make a horse race out of, uh, uh, out of a sale process. And, you know, when Iron Mountain and Pierce Leahy were, were acquiring businesses and then um, – Recall was pretty quiet uh, in the in the U.S. market. Uh, when Iron Mountain acquired Pierce Leahy, coincidentally or not, Recall kind of picked up the slack and, and kept everybody honest and kept multiples at a reasonable level. And then when they uh, backed off again, many private equity buyers stepped into the fold. And um, as a result, we've seen relatively consistently high uh, multiples in this space, unusually high multiples in this space relative to others since the mid-'90s. Yeah. As I look at it, and and I look at it from my perspective, you have a very different view of it because you're involved in these deals. It seems to me, from my perspective, that there there's acquisitions that seem weird to me. They're tiny little potential operations in the middle of nowhere that get purchased, that seem you know seem to be a little bit unusual. I, and and that's just my perspective on it. But do you see that? Why are some of the big roll up companies buying sort of things out in the middle of nowhere? Some of them are not. Uh, some are, are uh, avoiding smaller market operators, but, uh, but you're right. We, we recently sold Vance Goss's business in College Station, Brazos, and um, the, the buyer of the business had developed a presence in, uh, in Houston and uh, was looking to expand throughout Texas. So there we saw, and Vance ran a terrific, clean business. So while it was a small market, he was still growing the business, and uh, provided visibility to a buyer of, of uh, you know, healthy, growing business uh, that, was, that was well run and just didn't have any wrinkles to it. Generally speaking, operators in smaller markets need to, the bar is higher. They need to provide a, a cleaner business right. than somebody in a larger market. Because if you're in, you know, if you're in New York or uh, L.A. or, you know, one of the football cities, you generally will garner interest from a number of buyers because the tuck in the synergies from pulling your business into a, a larger operation provides sufficient cushion for a buyer that they can they can pay up for it and even if there's some fixing costs uh, they'll do that but if it's a smaller uh, business for instance record masters in the middle of nowhere in, in medford oregon you know 200 miles from anywhere yeah yeah i had a challenging time selling that business for a number of years and, you know, finally, uh, Access was starting to deploy a strategy of, um, of filling in 
to the very, very northern California and throughout Oregon, and it came to make sense to them. But timing is is much tougher for these smaller market uh, participants. They they sometimes are at the vagaries of uh, buyers' needs, whereas somebody there's always a uh, market for your business if you're in a right middle or larger market. Right. So do you think there's lots of opportunity still, or it seems to me this has never gone away. You say that multiples have remained high over the years, and you've been doing this a long time. So is there still lots of room for acquisition, or is it, do, you, do you predict it'll slow again, or what's your perspective on that? Well, specifically as it relates to mergers and acquisitions within the um, information management space, we see continuing activity. There's enough players that, uh, that have critical mass and have capital. We don't see that going away anytime soon. We could see multiple compression depending on what happens to buyers' cost of capital. So right. in English, that means if, if the cost of debt goes up, which it often does, then we would expect to see uh, some impact, particularly as the, organic, the perceived organic growth rate in our space continues to go down. Right. I think it's people recognize that um, service revenues are, the growth rate of service revenues is approaching zero and uh, the organic growth, uh, volumetric growth of inventory is, you know, not too many years behind that approaching zero. We, we could see, um, I think, multiple compression, but um, I think they'll, they'll continue to be a, a market for these businesses. So, you know, our advice to sellers is a little bit unusual. We don't, we're not beating the drum that you have to sell your business next week. We've always taken the approach that if you're, you know, if you're 40 years old and you're healthy and maybe you've got a family member or two in the business and you enjoy it, yeah, you're competing effectively because, you know, look, the majors are, are pretty good operators, yeah, but their operational capabilities vary widely across different markets. Right. So Iron Mountain may be terrific in one market and, and they may be terrific across most markets, but maybe they're not quite as good in, in your market. If you enjoy operating your business and, uh, and you're good at it and you're building intrinsic value by, by growing it significantly year over year, then you know, we wouldn't necessarily advise that somebody needs to do something. On the other hand, if, you're, if your health is failing or if you're advanced in age and you don't have any uh, family members to take over, uh, we don't think the space is getting any easier to operate in. Right. Uh, we think real estate costs continue to, you know, get higher. Uh, we think that um, a lot of the low-lying fruit with regard to, you know, it's not like you're going to walk in and find a 25,000 carton um, new revenue opportunity sitting in some company's basement. Right. right. You do, you're not going to find that as often as you used to. So. Right. We think it's getting to be a tougher and tougher business. It sounds to me, in terms of the what I keep seeing, it sounds to me like the international market seems to be a little more, things are happening there maybe more so differently. And I, I realize someone like you is involved in deals all over the place, and you can't always say what's going on, but are, are you seeing different things happening in the international part of the industry? Well, our perspective is that the international markets, you know, we can't, of course, you can't um, characterize them all the same way, but some are, um, you know, maybe five to ten years behind the more mature markets. We view uh, U.S. and um, Western Europe as relatively mature. Yeah. You know, Canada is, is you know, you see a, a high-quality operator like Jerry Doden's 
still growing uh, pretty aggressively, or, or James Bastion in Montreal. Yeah. We still see organic growth for good operators up there. You know, then you get down into Central and South America, we see meaningful growth. I mean, growth that, you know, you haven't seen in the U.S. in 10 or 15 years. Right. There's certainly uh, a market for these businesses, uh, as there is domestically. There's there's less competition for them because there's uh, less private equity interest. The private equity buyer backed buyers in the United States are uh, a little little more conservative of yet. I think as they scale up, they may um, they may seek international opportunities. But um, you know, you say uh, earlier, you make make the comment about uh, a bit of a head scratcher that you know some of these very small market operators in the U.S. can trade. Private equity backed buyers will reach for those, but uh, they likely will not reach for a smaller or mid-sized um, operator in outside you know North American markets. Right. So um, if, if somebody's doing less than a million dollars in, in EBITDA, um, that's a challenging company to sell except to regional players down there. Right. So when you go in acting as a seller's agent, how do you change the game for an owner in a, the sale of their business? How do, how do you, like if you're involved a year in advance, what are you doing to not, not only bring players to the table, but I, I guess this is more a question of what do – what do owners of businesses that want to sell need to be doing to make them more attractive to a buyer? Great question. So several things. First, one of the ways a, a seller can enhance the value of their business is to make sure that they've got all their ducks in a row. They should have uh, their contracts should be in good shape. They should have copies on site. Uh, by the way, your contracts are you know, the crown jewels of the business. You should have backups of your contracts. I mean, it's so funny. Very few businesses do this, but you should have a complete set of all your customer contracts, and then you should have a, a full set of copies off-site somewhere. Hmm. But uh, to the extent you have, let's say, 200 customers and you've got 150 under contract, we would encourage you to go out and get a, um, you know, through a contract signing exercise, the rest of your customers under contract. That, uh, that certainly uh, enhances the perceived value to buyers and reduces their, uh, their perceived potential liability if uh, anything would happen after closing. Right. And do you, um, do you feel like a lot of people don't have that in place? I mean, you said a lot of people don't even have backups of their contracts. Are, are there a lot of situations you've been in where you, or you see the need to 25% of the clients aren't even under contract? Absolutely. I really? would argue that out of, what, 200 businesses that we've seen in the space, maybe 5% have over 95% of their customers under contract. Almost none have 100%. Um, it's for a variety of reasons. Uh, owners, owner-operators are reluctant to kick a hornet's nest and, and go talk to a customer because they're afraid that they're going to go out to bid and they may right. lose the customer. So they're, they're reluctant to get them under contract. But um, uh, we think that there's an enhancement of value in doing that. Yeah, we encourage people to make great efforts to grow their businesses as they're considering uh, going to market. A business that's growing ten percent a year is going to sell for a uh, a better uh, better number than the same business that's shrinking or or flat. It's it's a sign of a relatively healthy business. Remember that the buyer doesn't know everything you know about your business, so they look at cues, and one of the cues they look at is your growth rate. If you're growing. That generally suggests that you are you have a good reputation in the marketplace. People like doing business with you, and um, and they'll take some comfort in that. So right. we encourage people 
easier said than done, but we certainly encourage our clients or potential clients to go out and, uh, and grow their businesses aggressively. Um, if they have any litigation, they need to tie that down. If there's uh, the real estate, uh, certainly need to be able to convey clear, long-term, stable real estate economics to a buyer. If it's likely going to be a pickup and move, conversely, you want to provide flexibility. But uh, if it's not likely to be moved, um, and we can we can provide some advice on on which circumstance fits. But if you're if you're not likely to move, then you need to have your real estate economics tied down because that's a big risk for a buyer to take. Right. Then as you get into the sale process, what we would encourage people to think about is most sellers of businesses have been running their operations for five to 15 plus years. Yeah. And they focus full time, 35 to 70 hours a week on running their business. And yet when they go into a sale process, which is effectively capitalizing all those years of effort, all the investment of time and energy and money and heart and soul into their business, that sale process is capitalizing all of that. Right. And yet people, because they have uh, a bit of anxiety about that process, they, they tend to shut their eyes and, and jump in, and, uh, or at least they did for a number of years. Now, most operators in the records management space have figured out that their outcomes are enhanced significantly by working with an agent. I would take that a step further and suggest that if, if one were selling their business, they would be well served by talking to multiple agents to figure out who's a good fit. Right. And, and talk to people who've sold their businesses. Talk to the agent's former clients, right? We've got dozens and dozens of clients that, that you know, say, hey, Chris, uh, show me your last 10 guys that whose businesses you sold. And that you and Sean worked with, and, and uh, let's let's have some dialogue there and see if uh, see if you guys are what you say you are. I think it's uh, anything less than that is is doing yourself a disservice because you're, you know, it's one of the most important transactions you're going to enter into in in your life. You know, financially, it's more impactful than than most uh, events in uh, operators' lives. So we we strongly encourage them to treat it uh, with, with great import. Well, and there's things that you, in the process of being an agent on their behalf, tend to bring to the table that they don't already have, that they're not aware of. Uh, I looked through, just before um, this interview, I looked through a history of you know back and forth emails that happened on, on some of the different listservs in the industry and came across you know, a number of times in the in the list, and not that you post a lot, but when you do, there's a lot of statistics and a lot of evidence and a lot of stuff that you're bringing that comes from the, the not only the work you're doing, but the, the stuff that you spend a lot of time looking at that the average 35 to 70 hour business owner doesn't, correct? Well, maybe, maybe an easier way to summarize that, that would be you just spent 10 years running your business. How many times have you sold businesses? Right. Probably between zero and one or two. Maybe you've sold a couple of houses, so you have some vague notion of how this might work. Yeah. In the last 18 months, um, I've represented on the sell side businesses that had aggregate value of a half billion dollars and directly for the LPs, uh, half of that, so a quarter billion dollars. So we're, we're very active in the uh, M&A markets, and we have a, a pretty good sense of where valuations are right. at any moment in time. I guess the closest analog would be when you're selling your house and you, you know, maybe, maybe folks out there have worked with 
the most active agents, real estate agents, in their local market. And when you have a discussion with somebody like that, they can they can spew statistics about price per foot and which which characteristics within micro uh, pockets in the neighborhood matter, and just generally what the value drivers are. And, and they they can tell you all the open listings and you know what buyers are looking for. Uh, similarly, we're this is all we do. Yeah. And uh, yeah. as a result, we're pretty good at it. And um, I think folks, if you if you talk to our clients over the years, we've universally had very satisfied clients because we focus on one, making sure that we know the market. Yeah, you know, we've turned down a lot of clients in industries where we don't think we have the expertise to represent them effectively. So number one, we make sure we know the market and we try to stay abreast of everything going on in the space. Number two, we take a long-range view of the space. We represent people to the best of our ability, maximizing their outcomes, not ours. Right. And uh, that distinction is important because agents are faced with, a, um, with an interesting conundrum where the seller of a business, his outcome, he's trading an asset with value for consideration, roughly, arguably, nearly the same value. Right. Uh, an agent, is his outcome is, is binary. We we make nothing unless there's a, a transaction, and in that event, we are compensated. So, on the margin, agents have a predilection to transact. Right. And uh, having been at this uh, in the record space since the uh, you know since the mid '90s, uh, both Sean and I have been in this space since I think '96. We've taken a different tact. We we always put our clients' interests first, and Fiduciary duty is is our religion, and uh, it's something that um, you know we won't uh, we won't ever sacrifice. But it's an interesting execution on that fiduciary duty varies based on each individual client. Yeah. So you have to get to know the client. If somebody is uh, young and vibrant and running a, a healthy, growing business and enjoys running it, you know they may have a different. You may dial in a different level of aggressive salesmanship than somebody who's who's just trying to get out. Yeah, if they're in failing health and they're yeah. older and their business is shrinking and yeah. they're trying to get out, you know, you, it's easy to be aggressive to the point of losing the deal. Right. And that, that may not serve the needs of that particular uh, individual, whereas the younger individual who's not that a younger party would run a business better than an older one, but in the example of somebody who has a lot of years left to run it and enjoys running it and is building their business, the intrinsic value is growing the risk of not selling is pretty low. If they don't sell this year and they're growing their business 10 or 12% a year, that's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty bad outcome if you're in your late 60s and you're trying to get out and your business is shrinking. Yeah. So we, we try to uh, listen to our clients' needs and, um, and tailor our uh, sales process around them. And we think that a, a sales process generally, to be effective, has certain characteristics. We need to really get to know the business be able to present the facts of the business well and create an auction-like environment. We think that by having multiple buyers interested in the asset, we get people to bid more aggressively than they would if they knew they were the only buyer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, and there's something powerful about being in an auction and when there's also that sense of who's bigger and who's stronger that I don't know if that's testosterone included somehow, but but something about an auction really drives prices up for some wonderful reason. It certainly does. And sometimes it, 
you know, we used to be able to guess what a uh, what an asset would sell for within three or four percent. You know, 15 years ago. Now, you might not know, but one thing that we do know is that by you don't know which of the buyers uh, might be more aggressive today. It might be might be Cornerstone. It might be Access. It might be Retrievex. Might even be Iron Mountain or Recall. Uh, might be one of the the smaller regional players. But by going to market effectively and selling to all of these parties uh, effectively, you'll end up maximizing the outcome for your clients. We don't necessarily have to know going into the process who the highest and best-priced buyer is going to be. We do need to know that it fa- that buyer falls within the set of people that we've contacted. Right. So what's the number one question people who are not yet a client of yours already ask you? Oh, they all ask, how much is my business worth? <laughs> <laughs> how much your business is worth? No, no, they want to know how much their own business is. Oh, their own, right. So they, they walk up to you, and before they're a client and before before you have any, done any of your own due diligence, they want to know what, what it's worth. And and that generally becomes a question of multiples, right? It's usually, what what am I am I worth seven times? Well, you know, in, in the old days, people were um, often, often followed these metrics that really didn't drive uh, values, but they were somehow correlated. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, people would talk about multiples of revenue. And while the buyers weren't focused on that, the sellers would, after the fact, uh, look at the uh, price relative to sales and somehow construe metrics from that. But uh, the reality is there are a lot of variables that drive value in, in the records and information management space. So yeah. certainly multiples of cash flow matter. But when we talk about cash flow, you could talk about trailing, run rate, future, and whether or not we're, we're evaluating the seller's cash flow or what the buyer's cash flow would be after they've squeezed some synergies out of the business. So one of the things that we do pretty carefully is we try to evaluate the business in a way that's empathetic to the buyer's operations. Hmm. We've been very successful in maximizing outcomes for sellers by understanding what synergies exist for those buyers and directing their energy to evaluate the business in light of that. So if you're in um, a major market and a buyer uh, has operations in that market, there will be significant synergies. They'll have route synergies. They'll have administrative synergies. Yes. uh, There may be real estate synergies. As a result, your operation standalone may look very different than what it would look like uh, under the uh, aegis of the buyer's operations. So mm-hmm. we, we tend to evaluate it from that perspective and uh, that good luck, um, you know, one, creating a competitive process and then two, making sure that we're looking at it from from the perspective of the buyers. Simple question. Would you ever own a record center again? You know, I would. Um, circumstances would have to be attractive. I'm, I'm reasonably busy these days. I sold record masters because I, I simply didn't have the bandwidth to, to take care of it the way it, it deserved. You know, we're having a lot of fun and success uh, representing sellers of businesses in this space, uh, that's taking enough of my time that I think I would be reluctant, but I certainly, uh, I look at opportunities from time to time. In general, I would never say never. Yeah. So but, it, uh, it, it's not, it's more a question of bandwidth, not a question of is it is it a legitimate and viable business to be in. I remember hearing Richard Reese a couple of years talk about that this is the second best business he's ever seen. Nobody was able to figure out what the first one was, but... Um, <laughs> But he said it's the second best business he's ever seen. So I just, you know, it's maybe more a hypothetical because I know you're you've got so much so much stuff going on. Well, we we um, 
I guess I wouldn't. A lot of people look at this industry as a buggy whip business now. So they, there's a perception that um, hard copy is going away. And, you know, we don't, I don't subscribe to that. I simply don't. I think that uh, there's a very long tail. I wouldn't be afraid to be an owner again in the space. I enjoy the space. I like it. I know it. Uh, we've had uniquely um, having represented sellers and buyers and owned an operation for, you know, 12 years. It's certainly in my blood. I do enjoy it. I'm not sure I would go into a smaller market again. Uh, there's some challenges there, but I think uh, to the extent an op- opportunity uh, came up in a, in a larger market, I might consider it. Final question, because we, we've blown through lots of good time here, but uh, what, do you, what do you do for fun when you're not working? And it seems to me like you, you do an awful lot of work, but when you're not, what do you do just to kind of let loose? Well, I bicycle a lot. I, uh, I'm a road cyclist. Um, there's a few of us in the industry. Mike Hefner is a very serious one. Uh, yeah. I'm not that good, but uh, I'd probably put in uh, 150 to 200 miles a week on my uh, wow. road bike and shoot up and down uh, A1A here in South Florida and um, enjoy the view of the ocean and the camaraderie with, with the other roadies. So enjoyable sport and uh, gets me gets me some good exercise and some fresh air. Wow. Well, very cool, Chris. It's been a pleasure. You have uh, you've been incredibly open about sharing some of the stuff that that you've learned along the way in your own story, and uh, I'm very appreciative. And I know people who are listening will be very appreciative. So, thanks for doing this with us today, and uh, continued success. I know lots of cool stuff's going on in your world. Tom, thanks for the opportunity to spend some time with you. I've been a big fan of uh, of you and your uh, your show for a long time. So, uh, thank you. All right. Bye. Bye now. Hey, thanks for being with us on the show today. I am extremely grateful you join us when you can. As you learned today, there are always amazing things that are a part of this show. And so special thanks to Chris Howard for his contribution to the show today. Hey, if you have a cool story, you're doing something interesting, something cool, something you'd love to get others to know about in the industry, we'd love to hear from you. Just get a hold of me as best you can through the rimproreport.com website or give us a call. The number's on the website. This show has been sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. What impresses me about O'Neill is not just the dedication they have to customer service and support, uh, to building a great product, but what I love and I've always loved about Ian and the team is the focus they have on new development. Not for where you are today, but development for where you'll need to be down the road in your RIM future. You can learn more about O'Neill at O'NeillSoft.com. Well, that's it for today. Talk to you next week. We are out of here. Thanks for joining us on the RIM Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com where you can find show archives and a whole lot more. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Incorporated. Join us again soon.